people have two choices, either to emigrate or to stay and fight. And I'm going to stay and fight. Right after this interview, Catholic billionaire Jimmy Lai was arrested in his office and thrown in jail. He has been there ever since. Why? He refuses to bow down to the Communist Party of China. I got the opportunity to speak to his right-hand man and fellow fugitive, Mark Simon, about the incredible story of a boy that went from abject poverty to one of the most powerful men in Hong Kong. God bless everyone. Welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, I'm joined by one of the most interesting stories I don't think anyone's really talking about. Today, I have Mark Simon with me. Mark Simon is considered the right-hand man to a name to a man named Jimmy Lai. He is about to reach a bad milestone, a thousandth day in prison in Hong Kong. Uh, Mark Simon is considered the right-hand man to Jimmy Lai and actually was forced to leave the country under some charges here. We're going to get all into that. But first off, Mark, thank you for taking the time. Hey, thank you very much, and thanks to your audience for taking the time to listen. Yeah, of course. So for those who don't know this name, Jimmy Lai, I know some people maybe know a little bit about him. Who is he, and why are we talking about him today? The main reason you're, we're talking about Jimmy Lai is this is a man who decided to stand up to probably the greatest threat to the world today, the Chinese Communist Party, or the Communist Party of China, as some call it. Uh and the threat that it represents, not only just to the world in terms of military values, military, but in terms of Western values. Jimmy is a classic Western liberal in the sense of a defender of Western values and personal freedoms and personal liberties. And that runs basically against everything that the Chinese Communist Party wants to enforce on the world. The unique thing about Jimmy Lai is, and my boss and my friend, is he's a very wealthy, wealthy man. In fact, you know, he was, he's a, there's a story of him as a, a great entrepreneur. Um, the Acton Institute has done a couple of things on him uh, in terms of his uh, entrepreneurial uh, efforts. And, you know, he's a man who was a billionaire, a U.S. dollar billionaire, and uh, took on the Chinese. And, of course, they whittled some of that away. Um but still a man of substantial means, you know, very substantial means. And he made a decision after a long, nearly 30-year battle with the Chinese to stay in Hong Kong and accept the consequences of his actions. And those consequences are unfair consequences. People always often say, well, you know, you've got to pay the piper if you're going to do something. Doesn't mean the piper's a good guy. Doesn't mean the piper is uh, honest. Doesn't mean... It means that if you're going to stand your ground, you've got to sometimes stand your ground against evil. And that's the thing about Jimmy. He, he made the decision to stay. And I, I think as people look into him, a lot of times people are like, well, why would you stay? And it's just because he knew that if he left after basically being a leader of the opposition uh, uh, movement, the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong since really 19... 90, 1991, when he first started his magazines and then his newspaper in 95, Apple Daily. He knew that if he left, that would be a significant blow in terms of credibility to the movement and to himself. In other words, you know, he said, I can't abandon these people. I won't abandon my workers. 
And he was in jail. They put him in jail. He's reaching the thousand day milestone. He was in jail for six months before they actually did the final raid and and then the newspaper was closed. I think if we go back to the beginning, a lot of his decisions make sense. And his backbone, of course, is made of steel. But he actually was born in China, as I understand. And he was he came over in a stowaway boat to Hong yeah, Kong, from he what did. I understand. He did. It's a great story. Um, Jimmy was born into a family. His father wasn't super wealthy. His father was wealthy by, by China standards at the time. He was a merchant in, uh, in China. He was born at that point in time to the second wife of, the, uh, of, of, of his father. His, his, the, the, back then, the men did have more than one wives in southern China. He was born pre, pre-war, pre-communist pre, pre, uh, takeover in 1948, or as it was going on, I should say, but, pre, but really pre the final takeover. And uh, once his family, once the communists took over, his father, who they had a very nice life, you know, a little bit above upper middle class, you know what I'm saying? And, but he didn't really know that. You don't know that when you're six or seven years old. Um, and basically the communists came in, they took his house. Um, he and his mother and his, his sisters were put in the upper floor of the house and they stayed there and he's got all kinds of stories he's got stories about how they used to trap birds for meals they would open the windows on one side let the birds in and then close the windows and then they'd catch the birds um he, but this is a guy who basically uh did have the good fortune of having a mother and people around him who knew you know a little bit what the outside world was in other words uh, he often told me he thinks if he would have been born in like, uh, if he was my age, if he would have been born in 1960 or 63, 60, 64, he said he may not have had the same experience because he said he wouldn't have had the people around him who remembered the outside. Actually, that's a recollection that we also heard from Eastern Europeans. In other words, you know, the pre-communist people kept a lot of things going. It's one of the reasons why the church was strong in Poland and some other places, the, the people who were born, they remembered before. Yeah, and can and, you explain to me, you said he had people around him who knew what was going on, as in they knew what it was like before. What do you mean, what was it like before rather than after? His, his mother, family members on his family, he understood that they had this big house, they had a good life, and then the communists took everything. Okay, so the family was always trying to do more. They were always trying to get more. In other words, in terms of not, not get back to where they were, but they knew there were things out there that they could achieve. His mother was sent off to, a, a, I wouldn't say it's a work camp, but she was sent off every day to do work, sometimes a week or something like that. Um, and his father was non-existent. His father disappeared um, on his own record. The, I, don't, we don't, I don't really know the full story about his father other than the fact that he disappeared. Uh, came back at a later date in life. Uh, Jimmy didn't want anything to do with him. Um, but so when I say that, it's people who have seen something before, people who understand the way things were prior to this, and they understand that there's an outside world. And, and, and part of that is there's the story about Jimmy. He used to work at the rail station when he was 12 years old, and he'd go to the rail station and you'd offer to carry bags. And most of the people you'd carry bags were, were people coming up from Hong Kong who were doing business in southern China. You know, it never really stopped. There were people going back and forth. 
And and he said, you know, the reason why they chose the the his mother told him it was good to, for him to work at the train station is he'd meet other people, he'd meet see outsiders, and that's where the famous story is when he was I think eleven years old. Uh, he carried a man's bag. The man gave him a nice tip, but then the man also gave him a Hershey's chocolate bar. And he had not been eating anything like a Hershey's bar for a while, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And he took the Hershey's bar and he ate it, and he was like, wow, this is fantastic. <laughs> Where do you come from? You come yeah. from Hong Kong? I want to go to Hong Kong. <laughs> and so it's an 11-year-old boy, and, 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 and the, thing, the point that I make is, and I think your listeners should make, Look at your own kids or look at your nieces and nephews or the kids around you and think about an 11-year-old who has that, who would have that moment, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I've been very fortunate. I've traveled a lot, you know, but I've been in Myanmar. I've, I've been in Pakistan. I've been places where I'm the first guy that's handed a kid a, a piece of candy. I've done it. I've, you know, you've handed a kid. He's maybe had some candy before, but it's a big deal. You know, I, I, I carried... For some reason in Myanmar, I don't know why, I had all the little peppermint candies with me that you know that your your aunts have around you. For some reason, <laughs> I bought a bag of those somewhere uh, in the airport, and I said, "Well, I'll, I'll bring these along in case my breath stinks." Well, I, I had about two hundred of them, and I'm giving these candies out in Myanmar, and you could see the kids every time they taste it. You know, their eyes would light up like, "What is this? You know, what what is this magic? What is this wonderful stuff?" And I, I, I actually, I actually always thought of Jimmy every time because I was working for him. I always thought of him every time that happened. And I, like I'm saying, I'm sure the kids had candy before that, but maybe they hadn't had that particular type or something like that. But it was, it, it was that that woke him up. And 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 at that point in time, that's really to me when his story starts. And there's the first part of his story. And the first part of his story is, at the age of twelve, he pushing his mother and he's he has another story too he's pushing a government official a police officer to do something for him to to basically um to basically help him get his papers to get out so it works out he gets that and he goes in the middle of the night they put him in the bottom of a boat and he goes down from the boat to hong kong and 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 he's leaving but his mother had sewed inside his underwear a gold coin to give to her sister or her sister-in-law, to give to a relative to pay for Jimmy. Well, Jimmy was standing in line, and of course the guards who were letting you across the border all knew that people were carrying wealth, so they're basically trying to steal wealth. So Jimmy ripped the coin out of his pocket, out of his pants, and he pushed it down into the mud. And they let him across because he had the papers. And so he gets to his aunt's. She's there. She takes him out for something to eat. And she said, you got no money. Um, and I don't have, I don't have, I have very little. I need you to go to work. So basically within the same 24-hour time frame, she took him to a friend. He was 12 years old, 12 and a half years old, he says took him to a friend, the guy ran a garment factory, and they put him to work. And I, I, I often say, I said, you think about that. That's a 12-year-old kid, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And 
Jimmy's personality is the same personality then that it was then. It was gregarious, fun, incredibly intelligent and inquisitive. It's the one thing that people will tell you. Anytime you're sitting with Jimmy, he, all he does is ask questions. And it's, and it's as all he does is ask questions um, when he meets somebody. And, and I mean, I understand he's not working. I see $8 a month, US yeah. dollars. Mm-hmm. So not, not for very much money. Was that even the ability to even do that excited him as opposed to being in communist China? Here's the thing. He's coming from China. And this is the thing. He's coming from nothing. Okay. He's, the food in China is gruel. They're trapping birds in his house to get protein. All right. Crows and birds. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you've got these things and he's, he's trapping these birds. He's trapping these birds to get food. So he comes to Hong Kong. And they take him to the streets. And Hong Kong, this is Hong Kong in, in, in the uh, 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 like night, late 1950s. So it's now established. The Brits have got the borders up. Everything's functioning. It's booming. It's just going crazy. Yeah. And can you explain really quick how that, how that is? How is Hong Kong able to operate like that, being so close to China? H- Hong Kong has a treaty. Uh, it was a 100-year treaty. Uh, signed in 1897 with the Chinese, where Hong, the island of Hong Kong and part of the way across the harbor, Kowloon, was basically ceded to the to Hong to the British government forever, per, per, perpetuity. They had it forever, but then there was a lease that was placed on the new territories, which is like the main part of Hong Kong above it, and that lease was the, uh, the outside islands. It was like Lantau Island where the current airport is, and it was a bunch of other places. And so the, the Brits basically had their own jurisdiction. So Hong Kong was a British colony. So British rule of law, everything. British rule of law, a uh, 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 separate monetary system with a peg to the U.S. dollar. In other words, the, the, and it's still pegged to the U.S. dollar. Uh, uh, free trade. You know, no tariffs, no barriers. Uh, the Brits set this place up as a factory for Great Britain and the world, and it became the factory. And Hong Kong needed one thing in ni- 1958, 1960s. It needed people. And so across the border, all these people came, and Jimmy was one of them. So you would come over, you would go to a police station, you would register your name, and that's it. You're there. And, and so that's how you got there. and. So then, so from there, that that's that macro situation takes us down to the micro situation of Jimmy, where he goes to work in this factory and he sleeps on a uh, he's sleeping on a a table. Um, then he figures out how to sleep on some of the fa- fabrics, and then he finally gets himself a little bed. And the men inside the factory are taking care of him. But the thing that Jimmy always talks about, and it's a lifelong love of his, is food. Is Imagine you go out and you're actually, you're now, you know, street food was just fantastic then, or small restaurants, or people would bring him things, or he, he told me his first Christmas, somebody brought him uh, a Christmas cake, some Christmas cake. And, uh, you know, because people would look after him and things like that. They brought him some Christmas cake. And he told me, he said, 
Because we were telling the joke, like you know how somebody gives you a, a Christmas cake. You know what I'm saying? The pat. What is it? The uh, the 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 fruit cake of Christmas. Yeah, I forget the name of it. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and, and they've lived for 20 years transferring between the families because nobody eats it. <laughs> Jimmy told me he goes, right. "I'm the only guy that likes Christmas cake, that likes the fruit cakes." <laughs> he said because it reminds me, and he told me yeah. that because somebody had it one time. We were making we were making a joke, and and he's like, "Hey, you know, I really I really enjoyed this." So. This is a guy who started there, and then it's the classic entrepreneur's tale. And then here's the funny thing, and this is the thing that it, it cracks me up in the U.S. because we tell the story, and sometimes young people go, oh, that's too bad. Jimmy noticed something. He said, everybody that was giving me orders in the factory and every place else spoke English. And so then he started a quest at the age of 14. He said 14 or 15 to learn English, no matter what. He just wanted to learn English. He would read everything. He would devour readings. Um, he said he became quite proficient. He's a very smart guy. He became quite proficient at reading by the time he was 16 or 17. In other words, he said he felt he could read texts that were equal with his age level of other students, and he was already starting to get other things. And so he'd read newspapers all the time. Anything that was there, he'd read. And he wasn't in traditional school, as I understand. He had right? no I mean, school. He Jimmy, yeah. Jimmy had no formal schooling past the age of eleven. Wow. And 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 you actually that, that's a that's a trait, by the way, when you work with entrepreneurs, it it is it is a unique trait I've I found in Asia because I worked with other guys, both who were educated highly and the guys who weren't, and of equal success. So he 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 started he started really you know he read, he learned things, um. He began working with um, a, a, a couple, a German firm that was that was working in fabrics and garments, and so he's in the fabric world. He's in the world of basically manufacturing, and he goes out one time and he 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 does really well. He got a good bonus. He had a it's a good time. He invests in the Hong Kong stock market. He makes fifty or sixty thousand dollars in the market, and he takes it back then. It's a lot of money in the in 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 the in the late in the um, I'm sorry in the early seventies, late sixties, and he invested. He invested it in the, uh, the early seventies. He invested in his own factory, and that was called Comitex, and he had some partners in it. He got some investors, and so then he grew. And he did what's called knitwear. So, example, the polo shirts, all these things. And he, he basically built that business, Comitex. This is the ironic thing. He built the business by actually doing business in China. In other words, Jimmy went across the border and set up factories. And at one point in time, it didn't last very long, he said, but at one point in time in the early 70s, he was the largest garment manufacturer in China. And I, and I heard that the Chinese government basically shut it down. What they, well, what happened is what happened is he had a small retail operation that he was developing, and the guys who were running it, he they just weren't running it the way he wanted them to run it, and so it was called Giordano, which, by the way, is his connection with America. He went out one time. He I recognize that name. He he went out one time with Giordano. He went out one time. He found a pizza restaurant. He was having pizza, mm -hmm. and. The next morning, he woke up in his napkin, and he saw the napkin said Giordano. He goes, oh, that's what I should name my store. <laughs> that's how simple he is. He's like, you know, he's like, why would we, 
you know, I, I, I still remember we had a partnership one time in another business and they hired, they hired branding consultants and he almost lost his mind. <laughs> he was, he was <laughs> like, what? We're paying somebody what? We're paying $150,000. He said, we've, we've had the most successful newspapers and magazines, but it was, I hate to say it, it was one of these formally educated people who they came in and they're, you know, they're putting the drawings on the board. It's like, a, I told somebody it was like a bad Ally McBeal, if that's a reference from a <laughs> episode where like they're going, and the line above here signifies this. And I'm going like the line above there signifies like $20,000 a year fee is what that <laughs> signifies. Right. Yeah. That's a and he went move. nuts. He went crazy. It was so funny. It was, and the thing was, is like he had appointed this person to do it. You know, he said, she's the one, she's going to lead us. And all she did was hire expensive consultants and you saw the <laughs> garment guy come out. And, yeah. and, and so the funny thing was, is that he developed Giordano and it just took off and he just did it very simply. He's always one who, uh, he goes, oh, I copied Gap because he just says it like that because he, he just doesn't talk about him so much. You know, um, that's awesome. Uh, the guy, I'm thinking of his name right now, the guy at Gap, he, he's actually very good on Uyghur rights. I'm a learner. Leonard's like, no, he didn't copy me. He said, we actually would look at what he would do sometimes. What Jimmy did was, and I know this sounds really too technical for you people, he was really one of the first fast retailers. In the old days, it would take from the factory door, even to Hong Kong, from the factory to the store would take a month and a half, six weeks. Jimmy got it down to five days. And he had feedback from the store. So the store would say, hey, the green polo's selling really well. More green polos. Yeah, it was all done by phone and fax, you know, before systems. And so he did that. So he grew Giordano into the, the, the largest fashion retailer. Uh, for those who know Uniglo, Uniglo is one of the big one in the U.S. right now, the Japanese one that's growing. He had a relationship with that guy. That guy gives Jimmy in his own autobiography, gives Jimmy tremendous credit for inspiring him. Uh, Jimmy had a chance to invest in him, but he said he was investing in himself and his own companies. So... Here, here's the thing that happened with Jimmy, and this is the thing about just meeting interesting people. Jimmy was constantly reading all the time. I mean, he read, he told me, he read every business book that came out. And he started reading some history, but he was bored by it. He said history didn't really interest him that much. He said it already happened. I could see where you'd learn a lesson or two, but that was it. Well, in the garment trade, and this, this is, this is kind of gets to his spirituality. In the garment trade, the garment trade was basically a Jewish trade, in other words, in, in New York and places like that. And he met these gentlemen. He was very fortunate. He met these guys in the trade who were quasi-intellectual. They were intellectuals. And so one day, Jimmy's talking, and the guy, I, I don't remember his name right now, he, he, he reaches up. And he pulls a book off the shelf and he hands it to Jimmy. He said, you got to read this. Before you keep talking, read this. And Jimmy read, it was Hayek's Road to Serfdom. And he read it and he told somebody, he goes, I had to read it 10 times and I got it. And he said, the light went off on like the third time he read it. He said, as soon as he read it, you know, it's not a huge book. He read it, light went off. Do you remember what they, that light was? The light was, he all made sense now. Everything made sense about what he has seen in his life. The depravity, the depression in China, the repression of the government, the communist, and what they did versus the free market and the free system. Everything started to make sense. 
to him. And so then that began really, that was the second part of his intellectual journey. The first part of his life was really starting to read. In other words, like, you know, he'd read business books. He'd read whoever the, the, the business guy was. I remember one time we were talking and we're, of course, we're around all these. I'm a business guy, basically, even though I write a little bit. Um, we were around all these highfalutin reporters and we're going, oh, there's Zig Ziglar. And Jimmy goes, yeah, I used to read Zig Ziglar. And people are looking at you, all these like New York Times types and all these j- journalists like, Zig Ziglar? Who is Zig Ziglar? Well, a couple of the business journalists knew who he was. He's the famous sales guy who taught at Harvard. But that was his name. And he had like a book, like the 12 things to do for Zig Ziglar, the 13 things to do for Zig Ziglar, make a sale. Well, if you're a good salesperson, you've read it. You know what I'm saying? It's, 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 uh, it's, it's a good, very, very good basis for business. And so Jimmy would read all that stuff. But then Hayek happened. And with Hayek, you know, it was like the other side of the brain was like, oh my God, this makes all the sense. This puts all the lines together. And so I, I said two parts earlier, I should say three parts. So this was the part where he took off on the intellectual journey. And this is also within a few years, we had Tiananmen Square happen. You know, this wasn't, I should say a few years, maybe 10 years later, uh, Tiananmen Square happened. And when Tiananmen Square happened, that was also a political awakening for him because everything he'd read, everything he'd believed, his friendship with Milton Friedman, he was, by the way, he was, Jimmy has an incredible group of friends, many of whom were passed, but I mean, Jimmy truly was friends with Milton Friedman. I mean, not just okay, but when Milton died, Rose Friedman called over and said, Jimmy, I need you here. Milton, would, Milton wants you here. Why? Because Jimmy would protect her six, is what, what we used to say. Words, he, Jimmy would make sure that nobody, because everybody wanted the piece of Milton when he died. You know what I'm saying? Oh, we'll do the Milton Friedman this, the Milton Friedman that. Yeah. And you've got all of a sudden, you walk into the room and you got Jimmy Lyon, George Schultz, the, the former Secretary of State, are like the two bulldogs at the front gate. <laughs> Garden Rose Friedman. And I told somebody, I said it was, it was really, you know, because everybody else is like, you know, we're going to give the Milton Friedman prize. We've got all this stuff. And, you know, the boss was like, nope, you handle it. And I want to get back though, as you said, Tiananmen Square, and I've seen that. I mean, this event impacted so many people, but I'd imagine him after having that awakening and then also being from China, when you were with him, how did that impact him and how did that change his course? Well, I, I, I came to him about 10 years after that. What happened in 1989 affected its, 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 uh, its unresolved in China for the people. In other words, first of all, it didn't happen so long ago that people don't remember. In, in other words, like if you're under the, if you're over, if you're, if you're under the age of 40, 35, 40, it may not mean a tremendous amount to you because they basically covered it up in the schooling. But everybody above that age knows about it. And it's unresolved because um, they have the re-examinations. And if, if it, it's not something that everybody in America should follow or would be interested in. But the point is, is imagine the government does something so horrific and then they never apologize for it. They never say, I'm sorry. They never do anything that would change the way the world would look at the incident. And in other words, Tiananmen has always been up 
in the communist system for reevaluation. In other words, its mistakes were made. They've never come all the way and said that. They've never even gotten really close, in my opinion. Some people have said they have. I don't agree with that. But what happened is, is that basically, um, they they slaughtered all across China. Tiananmen is very important because that's where the oh, that's where the CNN cameras were, and that's where our cameras were. But there was an uprising all over China. It was everywhere, everywhere. There were these demonstrations, these uprisings, and millions of people went to the streets. And the Chinese Communist Party cracked down. Um, we had the massacre in Tiananmen. We had crackdowns in other places that were quite brutal. And that affected people such as, as Jimmy. Now, we also have to remember another thing, too. It was 1989, what had just happened. The Berlin Wall had just fallen. The Chinese were very aware of that. So there was an idea of freedom. There was an idea that something big was going to happen here. And so there was mass disappointment. And of course, Mr. Lai, Jimmy was actually, the boss was very disappointed along with other people. And I think it affected them dramatically. You know, he, he did all types of things. You know, I mean, he had Giordano make shirts and then gave the money to the dissidents. He had all types of friendships. But you have to remember, he was doing all this from Hong Kong. And in Hong Kong, in Hong Kong, you were free to do it because the Brits were running the show. But in China, you weren't. And it was really in 1989 when he came to the attention with his statements and with everything that he came to the attention of the Chinese. Now, it was also Tiananmen that really brought his publications. That was kind of his awakening. Jimmy was always anti-communist. This is the whole thing. Ever since the Hayek time, ever since his parents lost everything, the boss said he can't remember a time when he was ever like, go CCP. He was never that way. You know what I'm saying? He was, he was never team commie. And, um, he, but he said it came into, it came into, he came into a position of, of understanding the brutality that they could level and understanding what it meant for Hong Kong, because you have to remember at that point in time, Hong Kong was already on its way back. The Chinese had already started around 1984 saying, gig is up, we want it back, you know, because the, the lease was running out in the new territories. Margaret Thatcher was now looking to cut deals. So it was a very, it was a very odd time in terms of history. You know, you can't look at history and pretend it just happened in a vacuum. There were all these things going on around them. And so that influenced him and it influenced many other people. It was during this time that he first met the Hong Kong democracy movement. Before that time, he'd never really met him. He'd been focused on his businesses. In fact, prior to 1989, Tiananmen, he was actually looking for another business line to go into. You know, because he, he, his intellectual journey was starting in other ways. He had a family started, you know, he, he was moving forward in life. And, 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 and he, there wasn't really this, this, this uprising in China yet. And when Tiananmen happened, that just changed the ball for so many people. It, it would, I, I, I would have to say, um, it, it, it's, 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 somewhat, it's somewhat like our Bunker Hill or the Boston Tea Party, the Boston Massacre, you know what I'm saying? It was something like that. 
across across the U.S. where all of a sudden people in Virginia and Pennsylvania who didn't know any of these former people are like, what do you mean they just shot down these people? That's ridiculous. Why would they do that? And, you know, of course, the pamphleteers and all that stuff. Well, I mean, it went all through China, it went all through Hong Kong, and the world basically saw this communist power for what it was. So that took him to the, the next stage of his life where, and what he's most known for is Next Magazine was the first magazine. It rolled out really in 1989, it started rolling out then. Uh, and people attribute him starting that to Tiananmen. The fact is he was already moving into publishing. He was already interested in it. Um, and he had a, he had a couple investments and then he just jumped into it full, full fold. Um, after that, Mex Magazine took off. It became the number one magazine in Hong Kong. It was unique. It was hard hitting. It was everything. It was a, it was a great magazine. It got him in trouble with the Chinese all the time. He got in fights with the local business community. He was very, very happy because he likes those fights. He liked those fights. So you know, he knew he was making progress. He knew he was getting under the right people's skin. When you're, pub when you're in publishing, you define yourself a lot of times by your enemies. You know, it's like an, it's people that don't like you. If there's a reason why, you know you're scoring. And Jimmy was very, very well on his way to being not liked by many people. Um, but then something happened in 1994. And in 1994, he wrote a column and we called it the most expensive column in newspaper history. <laughs> he still owned Giordano. He was still owner of Giordano. And he wrote a column, and there was Li Ping, the leader of China. And he basically called Li Pong, he called Li Pong, he called him Li a turtle's egg, something like that. Basically, the translation, it's a very crude. It basically has something to do with your standing in life, your mother. Uh, all these, every nasty thing you can happen, uh, it's a nasty insult. Well, okay. the Chinese did not take that, but it was done in the context of criticizing him for Tiananmen. I, I, you, you could probably write Li Peng as a turtle's egg all over the place and nobody would pay attention back then. But if you put it in a political context, which he did, well, at that point in time, they said, look, you've got all these shops, you're making money in China, we're not going to take this. You've got 72 hours or whatever it is to sell or to, or to apologize. And he was given a while to apologize for it. People, it wasn't like an overnight thing. Was, why, why? Why was he given that time? Because that's what the communists do. They always give you a time to recognize. You're more, it's more effective for them to make you bend than to punish you. In other words, they want you to bend. And that gets onto his story net web, come into him in prison, why he's such a problem for them. He won't bend. But the communists... They always want you to bend. In other words, I think we see that in movies or everything else, like the mob. Or if they can compromise you, you're compromised. They can make you bend. If they can break you, then that's what you're they want to do. Yeah. They, but the punishment is, is no need after that. Once they've compromised you, once they've made you bend. So he refused to. And once he refused, he had to sell. So they basically unloaded $500 million in his pocket. You know what I'm saying? Because he had to sell. It's a public listed company. He sold it all in the period of less than a month because he had, it, took, it took, took long. You know, people always say he sold it overnight. Well, he sold most of it overnight, but he took a while to get rid of it. It's a business so transaction. So if he, if he would have not sold, would they have just seized They'd it? They'd have closed it. They were already closing shops. Wow. 
So they were just in China. They would have just gone around and basically taken it from his hands, gone. Yeah, but the real that was part of the threat, and he said it. He said it for a while. He was like, "Okay, we won't do business in China. We'll do business because he had shops in Indonesia, Singapore, places like that." He said, "I'll just make money, and people will shop with me because they hate the Chinese," um, which is true. It does help a little bit, but the real problem was he has factories in China, and that's the only place that was making stuff then. We're talking about the media company now, so he's done with the the Giordano's. Which also just, it just makes me laugh saying Giordano's as an American. Um, but now we're in the news agency and I have a quote from him here. It says, in the media business, you deliver information, then you deliver choice and choice is freedom. I was thrilled that I could be a part of an institution that was delivering freedom. Um, to your point earlier, it became such an influential Apple, Apple Daily News became such a, and, and by the way, did he get the name Apple from Apple? Like actually, Apple, actually, the- Apple Daily was... Uh, uh, the other part of Jimmy that you have to remember is, is that Jimmy, uh, met somebody after his first marriage collapsed. Um, he met somebody called Teresa and Teresa, Jimmy was always curious about faith after he met these, these Jewish men. He wasn't, he said Judaism never appealed to him, but after, after in the late eighties, he started looking at faith. But it never really jumped in. He said it, he didn't feel he needed it. Um, but he met this woman called Teresa, who's a devout Catholic. And the whole thing with the apple was it had to do with Eve and Adam and Eve. Because when they bit the apple, that's when they had all the knowledge of the really? outside world. In other Interesting. words, it's a double, it's a double and, you know, whatever you want to call it, entendre. Yeah. When they, when they bit the apple, they saw the other side of the world. They were no longer in the garden. And that information was both bad for them, but God let it also happen because it was good for them, because you don't know truth until you know evil. And so that was the thing. And if you look at our Apple logo, I have it here somewhere. If you look at the Apple logo, you will see there's a bite out of the apple. And that's, that's what it is, which, by the way, saved me countless um, <laughs> countless times in my fights with the other Apple. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you guys probably do get targeted. Oh my God, they were they're, they're fortunately their lawyers backed off. I got them to back off in about 2007 uh, with a with actually a uh, a visit to whatever Cupuccino or something like that as part of another thing. Oh, and California. they were they were wonderful. They we showed them everything. <laughs> they were like, "That's cool. You're not gonna, yeah." Because they just wanted to make sure we were not going to start producing computers. And we go, no, we'll never start right, producing right, no, computers. Yeah, no, 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 we're <laughs> in the news a... business. Although no, they, so, I guess they but, do have... But the thing is, is like, look, this is where... I think, I think it's very interesting with the boss in the sense that he understood how freeing information could be because he came from a spot where information was completely restricted as a child. He could have stayed in that factory in his own little world. He could have stayed just reading business books and just making lots of money. But the more he read, the more he saw the world around him outside of him. I'll tell you a funny story. Jimmy got me into raiding breakfast buffets. Now you go to a country, if you go someplace, if you go to Japan, the breakfast buffets used to be awful. That's because they had so many trade restrictions. But you go to Singapore or Hong Kong, the breakfast buffets were fabulous because 
It was free trade. You could get melons from Australia. You could get fruit from any place else. You get meats from every place. Your eggs could come from France. Anything you wanted could be there. And the thing is, is like that was the whole thing that he kind of looked at. In free flow of information is freedom. We we often forget the freedom that people have. We think back. If you think of your parents, and I'm of the age, if you think of the generation, all we had to look at was three channels for TV. If you didn't like Dan Rather, you went over and listened to the pompous, you know, Jennings over at ABC, and then you would go down to Tom Brokoff if it made you feel soothing, you know, the Midwestern accent or something like that. But what? But that was your choice. Uh, and maybe if you, you know, maybe if you went to PBS or something like that, it sounds like a skit from Anchorman, but there's a lot of truth to that. That was <laughs> your, that was your choice. Yeah. And maybe you listened to Rush Limbaugh or something like that, or you read the National Review or you read the Nation. Yeah. Now the internet is complete freedom. In other words, you can go where you want to go. Now, unfortunately for a lot of people, that takes them down some dark rabbit holes, you know what I'm saying? But for most of us, it's actually an enlightening experience and you can see things and politicians and those in power can be called on that. That's what Jimmy was at Apple Daily in Hong Kong. You have to remember, he started Apple Daily in 1995. The pernicious negative influence of China was already there. The large publishers were already selling their publications to the communists. The communists didn't learn how to be communists last year. They've been doing it for a long time. And they understood the power of the press. So here comes Jimmy Lai. They're actually got all the other publishers, with the exception of one or two small ones. They got everybody else in hand. Then all of a sudden, here comes Jimmy Lai with Apple Daily and Next Magazine. By 1990, by 1996, 1997, they're taking over Hong Kong. 1996, they've now got the top publishing and media house is a pro-democracy house, and it's run by Jimmy Lai. We used to run a column by a guy named Charles Krotheimer, who probably people remember. I don't know what it was, but Krotheimer somehow got under the heat. They, they didn't like him in China. And we would, get let, we would get pressure from the Chinese saying, you know, you shouldn't run this Charles Krotheimer guy. You shouldn't run him. And I, they, they, they confronted me about it one time in a meeting. And I figured out what it was. They were just, that's where they were starting. In other words, they figured, all right, we'll get them to ban the white guy that nobody knows, you know what I'm saying? And then we'll move on. So I always tell that story because it shows how, how, how pernicious media boycotts are. And this is the point about Jimmy with freedom. The boss, it's hard to explain this. It's hard to really understand tyrants until you deal with them. Okay, everybody understands a robber on a street. But not many people understand a system that's meant to oppress, you know. And, and, and the boss grew up and he lived with that. And I didn't understand it that well. You know, it took me seven or eight years to really figure it out. And I always use the Krautheimer example. Now, my light was on before that, but I was like, okay, that's what they want. They want us to basically, they picked out this one white guy as someone who is we should, they, we should not run. Why are we putting his garbage out there? His neocon garbage out there was what they called it. I still remember the guy. I don't think he knew what neocon was, but he's, that's what he called it. <laughs> um, but he said that to me and I was just looking at him and we're at the Luke, Luke Kwok, 
uh, tea house. That's where we're meeting. And I, and, I, and I go, that's all he wants is me to say, okay, we'll ban one. And then the next time I meet with him, he'll have a longer list. Right. But once they broke you, they broke you. And the, I told the boss, and I didn't get a chance to tell him that I'd already said no before he started yelling at me. You better not. And I was like, oh, I didn't. I wanted to tell you. Go, okay, good. But he knew. In, instinctively, Jimmy knew what it was. He just knew what it was. Before, you know, he, I said, don't worry. I, I didn't do it. I was going to tell you. I think, I know, I know, I know. He goes, yeah, yeah, that's right. But so, so Jimmy's moving along there. And I know I'm, I'm you, you folks. But here's the thing about him is, so Jimmy's next really intellectual move and what sustains him today is as the boss got closer and closer to 1997, the threats really picked up. And, and, and I wasn't there, but I've talked to him and I, I knew people who have now since retired left. The, the threats were really intense. We're coming to get you. Now, it's pre-97. These people's point of reference is 1989. The Brits are leaving. The Chinese are coming in. The Chinese PLA is going to roll over that border at midnight. At one past, at 10 past midnight, because I guess they couldn't get the truck started, across the border comes the PLA for the first time, you know, with weapons, with, you know, not tanks, but with trucks and full of people. Most people, myself included, because I lived in I lived in the Philippines at that time. Most people assumed it was that was it. They were going to start picking up the dissidents. Most guys thought they were going to jail. Uh, people had written last wills and testaments. They were talking to their lawyers. Everything, including Jimmy. Jimmy told me he had done that too. And what happened was, as they're approaching that time, I think Jimmy especially through his introduction to religion by Teresa and by some people in the democracy movement. The boss, how was the term I'm going to use here? At that point in time, the boss started really thinking about his relationship with Christ. And it was um, just before the handover, or just, I can't remember, it was, it was around the handover, Jimmy converted to Catholicism. You know, and Bill McGurn of the Wall Street Journal was his godfather because Bill was there at that time. Uh, Cardinal Zinn was at the ceremony. They were all there. They were all friends. And Jimmy came into the church. The interesting thing about Jimmy coming into the church was, I think people have always thought because he did it at 97. Now, McGurn and I disagree on this. Bill and I disagree on this. Bill thinks it was somewhat emotional. I, I don't think it was because I've worked with the guy. The guy's always planning. It may seem like in the office sometimes he'd go, we're doing it. Let's go forward. And people go, wow, he just made the decision. I'm going like, he's asked me like 15,000 questions before he made that decision. <laughs> right. you know? yeah, he, he just, he, he's a very calculating guy. And he thinks about things hard. The boss, I think he had come to the conclusion that this is where he wanted to be. This is where his soul was taking him. And he was willing to have that leap of faith. He was just willing to jump in there. No, no, no religion. He's not a Methodist jumping over. He's not a Syrian Orthodox like myself, you know, certifying the Catholic Church. This is a guy who just came in. He came into the church. And from that time, it has been an intellectual journey with him 
that I think has really changed the way he as a man interacts with the world. Um, and, you know, probably his best friend is, one of his best friends is Joseph Zinn, the Cardinal of Hong Kong. They're, they're, they're just really good friends. I mean, it's, you know, Cardinals have friends too. You know what I'm saying? They're not all the flock, but that, that's his, that's his, that's his best friend. Um, a man who also understands persecution pretty well. Oh yeah. He I'd get, imagine. Nobody gets the commies better than Zinn. He gets them better than Jimmy. Actually, he really understands them. Um, and that's why they hate him so much, by the way. Um, yeah. but he, he, um, so Jimmy has come into the church. I'm a little uncomfortable talking about his, you know, his, his, his faith because he is a man who's quiet about his faith. You know what I'm saying? But he lives, he lives, he lives, he lives the, uh, he lives it. And, you know, so for example, he's, he's pro-life. We don't have the same debates in Hong Kong that you guys have. We have in the U.S. about pro-life movement, you know what I'm saying? But he's very pro-life. Um, but he's pro-life also in the, in, in, in the way, for example, you know, he really, the times that we've come across young women who've needed help and things like that. Uh, dozens of times we've stepped in, he stepped in to help financially, uh, have a conversation with him. You know what I'm saying? Uh, he has six children of his own. He, he, he worships those kids. Um, that's, those are the most important things in his life. It's part of the reason, uh, he's in jail. Um, one of the things he says, I won't say it, his exact words, because you know we are businessmen and garment guys and stuff like that, so we can be a little bit risque. Um, <laughs> the boss, people said, "Why did you stay?" And he said, "After thirty years of causing trouble from 1989, I'm going to leave people. My kids would think I'm a, you know, bad word." He said, "Why would I do that to my kids? Why would why would I have my kids have to defend me in public?" Where people wow. would say your father ran away. Look, they're not with their father right now, but this man is sitting in jail. He is a witness to what the evils of the world are. I, I think sometimes over here we don't really fully understand what we're seeing in the Communist Party. I mean, I, I'm one who just believes that basically uh, they came out of their shell in 1990, 1991, because they had to. In other words, Tiananmen was the wake up. They thought they could basically make some money on the side and continue to do what they do. They found out they couldn't do that. So what have they done? They basically have, they've gone into the world quite successfully. In fairness, they've raised the standard of living of people in Hong Kong, in China. Um, people have done well. You can't, you can't really say that. I think they'd have done just as well under a free market democratic system, probably better and they'd be happier. Um, but they have, they have, they, they basically raised the, they raised the, they raised the, the lives of people. They, they grew them up, but Jimmy always thought that they could do more. And he always thought they were holding them back. In other words, the repression that was there. And what we've really seen is we've seen them do this build. And now we've got this new guy. I want to say new guy. He's been around 12 years. I'm a good accountant. Xi Jinping. And he's a hardline commie. He's a, we always say Marxist-Leninist. 
He's a Leninist Marxist. We always have to remember that with the communists. <laughs> Lenin comes before Marx. Marx is economics. Lenin is politics. And Xi Jinping is a Leninist Marxist. He believes in politics. He believes in control. So can I ask you why he's in jail? So they raided Apple Daily News, from my understanding. And I wanted to ask, were you there during the raid? No, I, I, I had to leave. And I... I uh, um. I've I've been dragged in over the years. I I, I would I use the term people said you say you shouldn't know the number. I say four or five times because brought in a few times, called down other times. You know, but when you're called down, it's not exactly like if you're by this week. We'd like to see you. Usually, say we'd like to see <laughs> we'd like to see you Thursday at three p.m. and it's not negotiable. So I called that being dragged down. You know, in other words, other times they would they were nice enough to send a car and four guys. <laughs> to pick you up, so, you know. But I, I must say, I, I, I dealt with in many ways. You know, the last time I really got picked up was two thousand and uh, called in was two thousand and eighteen, um, and it was not anything. You know, I, I people are very dramatic. Um, I'm an American citizen. Um, they know I do a lot of politics stuff. So I mean, I've all, I was always treated with velvet gloves. I'm the first one to tell somebody that. You know. Um, um, I wouldn't even call the consulate before I'd go in because I didn't want the consulate involved. I figured it would cause me more trouble. Interesting. And I, I tended to be right on that cause. But so what happened is um, they started doing investigations. We knew they were doing investigations at the end of 2019. So what happened is we started getting signals that Mark, they're looking at you. They're looking at you hard. The national security guys, because that was already becoming a different department from the police department. So inside the police department and inside the prosecutor's department, by the way, the, the prosecutor was replaced and that was kind of when the dam broke. But inside the old prosecutor's department, we just started getting word, you know, through my lawyers, through other people. And it was really funny. That whole time I was saying it's time to get out. Um, the boss was getting nervous about me being there largely because I was the one who handled pretty much everything in terms of our democracy activities. In other words, people that over the years, everybody else had backed off. There's really, there's myself and one other person who had knowledge of everything. And that's going to come out and that's already in the indictments. Mark Simon did this and that. So, um, on the 18th of April, which actually is in, I left, and that's actually cited, um, that tells you the intensity, they, it's cited in the indictment against Jimmy, and I'm listed in the indictment. So I, I have, I know I have five charges against me, um, but if you've noticed, they haven't arrested any Americans. They made a mistake. They arrested one guy who was a lawyer, and they haven't done anything with him. And everybody thinks that was a mistake. Everybody thinks they thought he was a Brit. So you and he's not. They thought, or they thought he was. They they didn't really. They they made a mistake. Why are they so hesitant to go after Americans? Because they need the economic relationship. It's it's. I have to say, if you pick up an American, uh, for, for like someone like me, you know what I'm saying. If they were picking me up for politics, you know that would just that would that would become the number one. But here's part of the reason I left. Is, um. I, it's, I can't say this without, I, I, I hope nobody's offended by this, but like I was part of the narrative. In other words, is Mark Simon, ex-naval intelligence guy, 
Jimmy Lai's handler. Um, the communists lie a lot, and they have a propaganda machine that does it. So there are people in Hong Kong who, I was in, I, I can't, it's hard to tell people, I mean, you can, I was in the newspaper a lot, not just a little, a lot. I made the front page a number of times. Um, I even wrote it, I had to pull my family out in 2014 because, you know, our house was raided by the police, by the ICAC and the police. And, uh, the pressure became so much that my wife and I made the decision to pull the kids and just say, it's not a good environment for him. And Jimmy fully endorsed it. I re- I remember he was saying, no, oh, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And then he talked to his wife and he talked to a couple of other people and he called me back and he said, get out now, get the family out. And if, <laughs> if you want to stay out yeah. for a while. Because, you know, he knew I was, I was, I mean, I, I know this sounds odd to people, but like they were waiting for us in our basement when we would come out. There'd be people waiting there in, in, in our basement to take pictures of us, to ask us questions. Um, even the Hong Kong police in 2014, they stationed a van outside my house and people said, was that to harass you? And I said, no, because I knew the commander. He put the van out there because he didn't want any whack, whack jobs coming by. You know what I'm saying? And he mm-hmm. was a good guy. You have thick skin. You took a lot of this punishment. Why do you have such a, uh, why do you despise communism so much? Why do you, why do you despise these people? Is it for what you saw them do to Jimmy or just their principles? Why do you? Communism is an evil system. And early on, I also was influenced. I probably should have become a Catholic much more before I did, but I, cause I was very much influenced by JP too. Look, no God, no good, you know? As, as, as a priest, I used to know, say, um, no God, no good. And I think we have to look at a system that basically is second rate people. And that's how I came to the conclusion in Hong Kong. Every commie I've ever met has been second rate, but here's the mistake of the first rate people. Here's the mistake that happens so often with people who are good and decent. We forget what the second-rate people not want to do, but must do to obtain their positions. If you ever deal with cops, the cops will tell you one thing. Most criminals are morons. You know, sure, there's the t- we always have the TV shows that show us the brilliant guys, but most idiots, most, most, most criminals are idiots. But it doesn't mean they lack ambition. It doesn't mean they lack wants. It doesn't mean they have, don't have desires. They just don't know how to get it. Communism, the Chinese Communist Party, the closest analogy, the closest structure that I've ever found, and this comes from me working at the Navy where I spent some time looking at structures, the closest structure to the Chinese Communist Party is the mafia. That's it. Russians are so the Stalinist model a little bit different, but the Chinese Communist Party is a mafia, and 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 that's what it is. And their goal is to hold things down. It's the reason why in the U.S. the mob was so powerful. Why was the mob powerful? The mafia was second-rate people. There was no geniuses in the mafia, but they were willing to do things. And this is the thing that I think people often forget: they're willing to do things. And the problem that we have is we in the West sometimes basically don't want to recognize that because it kind of ruins our worldview. In in other words, I I don't think 
you know, I don't think that the men who fought World War II, the men who fought Korea, even other people, I think they understand you can be a good man and still deliver violence. And I think my point being is, is we have to have men and women like that and understand that the communists are willing to, to, are more than willing to deliver violence. But like the mafia, they'd prefer not to. They'd prefer to just to basically compromise you. Now, whether they do it through bribery, whether they do it through money, I mean, do it through force, whether they do it any way they do it, they would prefer to do that than actually have to crack, crack heads. That's really the truth. They, 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 this, that's why I say the Stalinist model is a little bit different. If Jimmy was in the Stalinist model, he'd be dead. You know what I'm saying? If this was Russia, they, they'd have taken care of that a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, so, so can I ask, because he's in jail now, so I'm assuming that means he didn't bend he couldn't be compromised, so they had to go to the nuclear option, which was raid Apple Daily News, take him in, drum up some charge. Like, what was he? What was he charged with? Why was he able to be able to take him to jail? Jimmy's got three sets of charges. The first set of charges he had against him were um, actually for violating public order. So, in other words, when he went to protest. So, when you go to a protest and you're not supposed to be there. So, for example, Jimmy got charged 1.5 million people marched in the streets one day. Jimmy was charged with organizing and participating in that protest. He was 1.5 million people. So it was somewhat selective, let's just say. And, yeah. And, and, and also, you know, the idea that he organized it was based on the fact that Apple Daily promoted it. So that's an attack on the free press there. So I, he has, I think it was three of those incidents where he was charged. And then he was sentenced. Where um, Imagine... Imagine a sentence in the U.S. for just protesting. You know what I'm saying? In other words, like people go down all the time. I protested against South Africa. I've been to pro-life demonstrations. People are arrested, then you're let go. You know, if it's just a demonstration. This is a political demonstration on the street. That's all it was. Basically, he was locked up for lighting a candle one night, you know what I'm saying, on the June 4th demonstration. But it's a charge. It's a chance to do him. So that was his first set, what I call the, the, the basically the protest arrest, or the first thing that he got, that and civil disobedience. That's what he got arrested. And he did, he was sentenced to jail for it. The second thing was a little bit more devious. That's what, that's what I call where they're trying to dirty him up. That's where they charged him with fraud and they charged him with fraud and for basically having a lease violation. So in the first time in history of Hong Kong, a lease violation became a criminal charge. Not only did it become a criminal charge, it was investigated by the National Security Division of the Police Department it was prosecuted by a national security prosecutor, and it was tried in front of a national security judge for a lease violation that literally was my office. That was the whole thing. It was like basically we were, the company was leasing out space internally. No money was missing. No money was stolen. It was, for, it was publicly disclosed. It was, it's a big company. We're a giant company. We have over a million, like, 700,000 square feet of space in, in, our, in, our, in our company. And we, they basically went after us for 1,000 square feet. That's what they went. But they got him. Um, now, the one thing is I was very pleased. The U.S. The, was so upset. The U.S. saw it for what it was. And the U.S. and the, the, and the, the, US and the United Nations um, and, and some other newspapers basically called it a spurious, ridiculous charge. So they didn't get what they wanted out of it. They, they, it actually cr created problems for them because people saw what a ridiculous charge it was. But now we're into the, the more serious charge. Now we're into the national security charge. 
The national security charge is basically a charge of what we would in America would call treason. In other words, that's what it, in, in my mind, I, I'm sure the lawyers often say, well, it's not that, but it is. That, that's what the commies, when you look at, you have to look at it from their system, not from ours. They're saying that basically he is trying to undermine the Chinese Communist Party and he's trying to undermine the government of Hong Kong, which is overseen by the, or controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. That carries life sentences, and there's two charges there. So this 75-year-old man, about to be 76, is waiting for his trial on these charges. Now, just so everybody knows, they've delayed his trial twice, and his son Sebastian has a great line. We know it takes a lot of time, Sebastian says, to basically get a show trial up and running. In other words, you've got to put on a good show. But let's be serious. You don't cancel the curtain call. You know, you don't cancel opening the curtains in the show twice if you have a decent show. They don't have a case. Their problem with Jimmy is they're trying to go after him financial support. Problem there is moi and the other people that Jimmy had nothing to do with it in many ways. You know what I'm saying? In other words, he, he, didn't, he didn't oversee this stuff. So that's, 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 that's the first problem. But what they're going to try him on is what he said and what he wrote. I mean, in other words, it's going to be his words. I believe in freedom, Jimmy said. I believe in the free flow of information. I believe in the rule of law. I believe the Chinese Communist Party doesn't stand for this. I believe Hong Kong is going downhill. Boom, that's a national security charge. And, and they use these on a regular basis now. If you just look throughout Hong Kong, you know, there's, there's a, a, a young man who was basically charged with a crime for basically going to put up a protest poster. He hadn't put the protest poster up, but he was charged with sedition, which is an, another form of the national security law, an older form. But they, they, there's, there's 210 people in Hong Kong charged with national security. Um, magically, all of them are democratic activists. <laughs> in other words, magically, you know, and, 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 and that's what it is. So Jimmy Lai is facing a lifetime sentence um, since he's been in, um, uh, you know, I, I cannot communicate with him. I was very fortunate early on up until his first trial, he was in a condition called remand and remand means he can go back and forth. Also, they were letting my letters to, in other words, I would write to Jimmy and he would write back and, 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 and they got through, I was getting them through after his first conviction, about two months after his first conviction, and I think also with my, 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 my exposure growing publicly in trying to free him and our efforts, magically my stuff stopped getting through. And so I, I am not in communication with him, his son Sebastian. We don't communicate with the family because he has family still in Hong Kong and they could be quite, they could really, they could really uh, be quite bad about it. Wow. So, I mean, sounds pretty bleak. Do you have? I have uh, a lot of faith. Your best. I have. I have. Yeah. What, what's your best prediction of what we're going to see here? Come from everybody has a congressman or a senator. All you have to do is pick up the phone or send an email, go on site and say, "Hey, there's this guy named Jimmy Lai in Hong Kong prison who stands up for Western values." Okay, and he's he's basically standing up for our values because our values are Western values. And we think the U.S. should try to help him and say something. Believe it or not, the reason why Jimmy will be released, and I'm firm in my belief that he'll be released, the reason why he will be released is because it's not worth it to keep him. See, my belief is this. 
my belief is not everybody is competent. And I think the Hong Kong government and the Chinese government, in their desire to make Jimmy move for to make him the fall guy, I think in their desire to make him the fall guy, they have basically overshot. In other words, they could have arrested him. They could have put him in jail for four years, release him. Everybody knows he's going to be released and the pressure wouldn't be there. Here's their problem with Jimmy Lai. Jimmy Lai is not just a, a, a freedom fighter. He's not just someone who stands up for democracy. Jimmy Lai is an economic creature. It's what Jimmy really is in his heart. You can't be an international financial center if you've got 1,500 to 2,000 political prisoners. It doesn't work. It doesn't happen. You can't be an international financial center without the free flow of information. Okay? Doesn't mean that you can't be Singapore. All right? I fully get that. But it does mean other things. You can't, you can't be the same thing. Do you have any lessons for Americans listening to this story? It feels a little far away, or, or it's just a society that we don't fully understand. But I think the consequences are meaningful for Americans. What would you say the lesson to learn here is? The lesson for Americans is this. External voices, okay, bleed into the internal world. And that's why we see them in so many different places, okay? And that's why we see them in so many different spots, trying to influence U.S. policy, trying to get involved in, in any place that they can. Uh, for example, whether it's Confucius Institutes, whether it's in our think tanks, whether it's at universities, they are trying- They bought up a lot of land in Michigan too. Well, the Goshen thing in Michigan is hugely problematic. In other words, once they get in there, do you think that all those people they pay in Goshen, I hate to say it, Americans, probably guys who are going to say, I'm a member of the American Legion, I did this, doesn't mean they can't be compromised. Okay? It doesn't mean they can't be compromised. It's, it's just one of those things that is problematic in so many ways that I don't think people, if you just sit there and think about it for a second, you'll notice it. In other words, here's the point. Look at what recently happened with our ambassador to Japan, Ram Emanuel. Probably not a popular person with a lot of the Catholic vote folks, but look what happened to Ram Emanuel. He was basically just making fun of the Chinese communists, and they flipped out. They went to the White House, and they actually had the White House try to silence him. But it's the same thing over here. Think of the business people. You know, Representative Gallagher from Wisconsin was saying, he said, you've got U.S. businessmen who will go parade around Beijing holding up the flag about how they do love China. But the moment they come back here and they're going to meet with U.S. congressmen to be critical of China or to stand up for human rights, they can't do it. So the real issue is it's a myth that you can't do it in your own country. And for Catholics, it's the same issue. I took cardinals in around here for years and years. We would go around places. The number of bishops that would not see him, Bishop Cardinal Tobin in New Jersey refused to see Cardinal Zinn. Okay. Why? Well, for the simple reason that Cardinal Zinn's out of favor with the Vatican over China. So they don't want to give Cardinal Zinn any... So in other words, Cardinal, Cardinal, they wouldn't see him. Cardinal Dolan wasn't all that good. 
and could, magically couldn't see him when he was here. And there were other cardinals. The cardinal, I can't remember his name, the cardinal in Toronto wouldn't see him. On the other hand, Cardinal Worrell in Washington, D.C., happily saw him, you know, and there were some other ones who were, who were pretty good. But the point being is, is that the Vatican, um, the Vatican basically was influenced to pressure the actions of U.S. cardinals and bishops and the church here in the U.S. not to offend China. And didn't, because Pope Francis just went to China, I know that deal was made, I can't remember what year the deal was made, but basically to reinstate bishops uh, instituted well, he, by yeah, China. He, he never went, but the, 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 the deal was made o- over eight years ago. It's never really worked out. No one in the Vatican thinks that what they call osteopolitic, you know, the real politic for the church has worked right. out. Well, yeah, because there's the underground church, but no, Pope Francis actually just went to China recently. I'm talking within the month, maybe, oh, he, two well, he, months he, ago. He went to Central Asia, he went to Mongolia. Oh, Mongolia, correct. Mongolia. Yeah. He was in um, Mongolia. He wants to go. No, and, and, and actually what he did is he took Cardinal, he took Cardinal Stephen Chow and Cardinal Tong with him. And they're basically in they're they're basically approved by the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Church. But <laughs> but when he went up there, he basically threw a bone to the Chinese. So if you're a Catholic, basically they're determining Catholic practices. In other words, they pick our bishops now. They do. They pick the bishops in China. Which is not, which is anti-Catholic doctrine. That's an, a, such an insane deal that was made. Problem we have is it's uh, Cardinal Perillon and all these other ones. It's a very deep, deep dive subject. But the fact of the matter is, is, is that ever since Benedict has left, um, basically the anti-communist church is no longer. Uh, by the way, I'll tell you what Cardinal Zinn said about Cardinal Francis. I mean, Pope Francis, and it was probably the best thing I've, I've heard. I was at the interview when he said it to the Wall Street Journal, David Fife. He said, the problem with Francis is this, is he's a young man who was raised in Argentina when the communists were seen as the good guys. They were the guys who fought the military dictatorship. They were seen as the peop- the, they were seen as of the people. Francis has always had that belief. He has never abandoned that. Hence, that means he's always seen the communists of the underdogs. The problem is he's never really had any experience with communists, especially China, never had any experience with them as the overlords. And that's the problem. Yeah. That's, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think it's an important lens to understand. Many people critical of Francis. Um, it's easy to kind of get in the mudslinging, but if you understand where his background is from, you kind of see the lens in which he views issues. So you could be frustrated, of course, but add to what you're saying, he doesn't understand what probably should understand if you were to live in China or under that oppression, what, for example, Jimmy Lai understands that communism, what, what is made capable by communism is evil. That's right. It's, it's, it's a system. That's what I'm saying. It's the closest thing they get really upset with you, the Senate. But the mob, if you look at the structure, that's what it is. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, that's why at times, uh, I won't go into it, but why Xi Jinping gets in trouble because the mob has to make money, the mob has to move forward, the mob has to progress. And un- right now it's not progressing in China, so hence the big guy is in trouble. We, need, we may need a new boss on that. But Interesting. That's it. Hey, I got to run because I've got to- Yeah, I was going to say, this is one of the longest ones we've ever done. All right. I mean, completely fascinating. 
Um, if people want to follow uh, updates on this or your work, do you have a resource for them to to follow you? Um, I I am. You can find me Mark Simon Hong Kong on Twitter. Um, Mark okay. Simon HK on Twitter. Okay. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time. This was a wonderful interview. Wonderful. Thank you, Tom. Take care. All the best. 